Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and this week we have Israeli author and journalist Yossi Klein-Halevi, who joined me in The Atlantic's D.C. headquarters. Yossi has a new book coming out called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Uh, It's really quite a a moving and interesting book. It's one of the best one-volume introductions to the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, we discuss everything in this conversation, the two-state solution or non-solution, the Iran deal or non-deal, uh, and we roam freely around the Middle East. Yossi is a guy I've known for many, many years. He's one of the most interesting voices in the Middle East. Uh, one note, uh, Yossi and I spoke a couple of weeks ago before the situation on the Gaza-Israel border heated up and before uh, the Iran situation heated up. Everything's very, very hot right now, which is another reason to listen to this conversation, but just wanted to note all of that. Uh, and before we go to the interview, I just want to make a quick announcement. The Atlantic interview is taking a short break after this episode. We're working on some new podcasts here, and we'll have more to share on that front soon. But this will be the last episode in this feed for a bit. Uh, to be notified for when we're back, just stay subscribed. Now with all of that business out of the way, here's Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi Klein-Halevi, thanks very much for being here on the Atlantic interview. Great to be with you, Jeff. Um, nice to see you in the diaspora. Have you been Have you been here before? In the diaspora? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was born here. Born and raised. Good, good. Yeah, no, I so, – so just in the interest I, of – I left my heart in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, I think it's your liver. I left my liver in Brooklyn. The – just so um, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I've known Yossi – for a long time. I'm not sure how we know each other, but we've known each other for a long time. Um, big fan of his work. He wrote uh, one of the best books uh, about uh, – it's a six-day war book, but it's more than a six-day war book. It's one of the best books about the Israeli uh, soul, if if you will. Um, and you have a new book coming out, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which is interesting because it's not only – to your Palestinian neighbor. Uh, as I read it, um, I realized that this book is directed at a particular kind of Jew in America who might not understand the story of Israel as you understand it. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that that the book really combines two commitments that I've had over the years in my in my work life in my in my Jewish life, uh, the first is to write about the Israeli narrative to try to to understand the narrative and explain it, uh, and that's been my my work. Those are the books I've written, and the second is uh, outreach to the Muslim world. Right, and and I feel an, an urgency to try to do whatever I can to try to help heal the Muslim-Jewish wound, uh, partly because of where I live in Jerusalem and partly because I think that that the, the quality, maybe even the fate of Jewish life around the world uh, in the 21st century will be largely determined by our relationship with, uh, with 1.7 billion Muslims. T- talk a little bit about the exact place you live in Jerusalem. I live in a neighborhood called French Hill. 
which is at the very edge of Jerusalem. Uh, and I live in the last row of houses uh, in French Hill, which is to say I live in the last, literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. Uh, the view from my porch is dramatic, complicated. Uh, I can see the desert, the Dead Sea, the hills of Jordan. But right up against my porch is the separation barrier, or in, and in Jerusalem it is a physical wall. Uh, so I'm looking out at Palestinian villages on the hill across from my porch, but we're separated by the wall. And that's the view that I wake up to, that I go to sleep to. And what happens when you live with that kind of, of horrific intrusion, that, that, that physical barrier, is that your eye really learns not to see. Mm. And so you, 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 I find I find that over the years I I'm looking at this very beautiful, dramatic view over the wall, and my apartment is high enough that I can see over the wall, and uh, and in the last couple of years I've I've tried to teach myself how to see again, and to see this whole landscape in all of its complexity and pain. You call the wall uh, horrific or you say it's a horrific view but you're for the wall well this is it i mean what i what i write in the book to my to my neighbor is that uh what in a way what sums up my my moral dilemma as an israeli is that i i'm horrified by the wall that keeps my children safe and so the the wall that i supported as did the overwhelming majority of israelis uh, except for the settlers, by the way. The settlers opposed building the wall. Well, they're on the far side of the wall. And they, that means something. Exactly. And they understood that the wall is potentially a future border. Right. Uh, but How when, far is the wall actually from your porch? It's a few hundred meters. Right. I mean, so it's right there in your face. It's right there. Um, what was it like before the wall was there? Well, there was a sense of uh, – of expansiveness, I think, on, uh, on, on both sides. There was this feeling that uh, the Palestinians on the next hill, first of all, didn't need uh, a permit to come into Jerusalem. So there, there was this sense of even though the, 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 the occupation was in place and, and it, there, was, there was all of that complexity, but still there was a sense of, of openness. On the other hand, during the Second Intifada, uh, that openness became uh, a, a source of profound trauma for for Israelis, for me, for my family, because it meant that suicide bombers could just saunter across the unmarked border and uh, and blow themselves up in in Jerusalem, and and so that wall was a a to my mind a necessary a a a, a an essential response to to the Second Intifada. At the same time, it's left this this scar. A, a permanent scar that's a reminder of uh, of our failure of the failure of both sides to to try to uh, to try to heal this wound and it's a reminder for me as an Israeli of how isolated we are from the Middle East and and I have deeply believed that the Jewish homecoming needs to be a homecoming not only to our ancestral land, but it needs to be a homecoming to the Middle East. And that wall is the most tangible expression of of the exile of the state of Israel from the Middle East. Right. Go go to that 
the nature of the tragedy, if you will. Sorry to just go burrow all the way in, right. but um, this is this is an idea that's shot through this this book, all of your work, um, which is that there's enough tragedy to go around, but the the root of this tragedy is not necessarily the settlements, though I don't think you're a particular fan mm-hmm. of the settlements. Uh, the root of the tragedy is the inability of Muslims, many Muslims, many Palestinians, to understand the Jews as indigenous to the Middle East. Yeah. Is yeah. that is that fair? Yeah. I, look, I, I, I think that if we were to uproot every settlement tomorrow and pull back to the 67 lines, uh, the, it would not change the nature of the conflict. Uh, well, there's would, an argument that says it would make it worse because it's like it's to, it borrow, to borrow from uh, T.S. Eliot, the giving famishes the craving in the sense that if you thought – if there, there's a school of thought that says Palestinians would see that as, ah, they're folding their tents. So now let's Well, that's what happened. Going. That's certainly what happened in Gaza. We uprooted every, every settlement, every army base in Gaza and pulled back to the international border and then thousands of rockets followed us. Do you over. regret the pullout from Gaza? No, no. I was a passionate supporter, uh, a public supporter, and I am deeply relieved that we're not sitting in the middle of Gaza. I I was drafted into the Israeli army at the beginning of the First Intifada and sent uh, straight to the Gaza refugee camps. And that's my trauma. That's where I learned uh, what an occupation is. And you learn that, that the only way you can, you can, suppress a popular uprising uh, is, uh, is through a series of, of petty humiliations. You create a system uh, of control. And I came out of that experience as, as I think, um, a majority of, uh, of, of our generation of, of Israelis came out of that experience uh, saying something has to change. And the election of Yitzhak Rabin in 92 was the political, the tangible expression of that change of consciousness among Israelis. I mean, I remember uh, seeing these 16-year-old kids throwing rocks at us. We had guns. One reason I remember is because one of those rocks uh, landed on my head. <laughs> and 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 what my my conclusion from that experience was I get it, you know. <laughs> well, would I, you, you know, Ehud Barak, Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, former defense minister, once got into trouble in Israeli politics for saying that if he had been a Palestinian, he would have been throwing rocks or no, whatever. No, what he, he said it was he would be, he would have been a terrorist. Oh, right, and, you right. Know, that, Thank so you that, for the that's correction. A, that's, that's already that's a, taking it a step too far. Uh, I it's certainly, another level. And it's another level. Maybe Barak would have been a terrorist, but I certainly would have uh, – uh, you would have been throwing rocks been, at I would, yourself. I would have been throwing rocks. Absolutely. Right. So, so, so let's let me just drill down on the settler question because you know, I, I yes, you're not a fan of the settlements. You do express a kind of poetic, um, elegiac uh, response to them. They are they are fulfilling a Zionist dream in a certain way, and it's sad that they won't be able to do it uh, in the in the event of a two state solution. But um, isn't there a little bit too much poetry in your view of the settlers? I, I mean, you don't know for sure that had they not settled the land the way they did, that a two-state solution could have been found already. Maybe it wouldn't have made the Palestinians particularly happy, and maybe they would have kept the dream alive of seizing all of Israel and turning it into Palestine. But how, how do we know? How do we know that, that the tipping point wasn't reached years ago and that it didn't have to have been reached? Look, to uh, 
To some extent, I, I agree with you that we have to be very careful about uh, the pull of romantic history. Uh, romantic history is very dangerous uh, when it's welded to, to power. And um, my argument uh, that I try to make in the book is that uh, the settler movement uh, is the Jewish equivalent of the Palestinian demand for the right of return to the state of Israel for the descendants of Palestinian refugees. Right. That there are really two rights of return uh, because there are two indigenous peoples that are competing over over the same little land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And, and I'm sympathetic in principle to both demands for return. And I accept, again, in principle, as a starting point, the maximalist Palestinian claim to all of the land because my inclination, my, my emotional inclination is the same. I believe deeply that this is this is my land between the river and the sea. Uh, this is the heartland of the Jewish people, what's called the West Bank, what Jews have called Judea and Samaria for thousands of years. Uh, I don't come from the left. I grew up on the right. And so that's very deeply in me emotionally. But my, my wake-up call came uh, during the first intifada of the late 1980s, and I realized that there's a – the price that we would have to pay – for enforcing our our legitimate right to the whole of the land is too high. It's too high for us. It's too high, obviously. And pullback to you is not an option. There's a wall. Israel can hold on to the Jordan Valley. You mean but unilateral pullback, like Gaza, like which Gaza. you still support despite all of the roughness. Look, I I debate with myself about that. I I, I have more. You can have your own podcast where you yell at yourself. <laughs> Look, you know, I have mornings when I wake up and it's 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 a left-wing morning. You know, and I really and I tell myself whatever we have to do, just get out. Cut it. We God forbid another 50 years of uh, of ruling over another people. But I have other mornings when I wake up and I say to myself, "Are you out of your mind? What do you think is going to happen if we unilaterally pull back without without even a semblance of an agreement?" And everyone knows what's going to happen. Hamas will take over. And so we'll have Hamas five minutes away from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So I don't see unilateral withdrawal at this moment as an option. Although if five or 10 years from now, there's still no chance for an agreement and the, and the only two alternatives are unilateral withdrawal or continuing occupying the Palestinians, then I, I, I see a unilateral withdrawal as our last desperate uh, pullback uh, option. What don't – you come out of the American Jewish right, albeit 30 years ago or more. What don't right-wing Jewish American supporters of Israel understand about the conflict? The first thing they don't understand is that there really is a Palestinian people. And I discovered the the – the reality and the and the power of Palestinian identity by getting a rock thrown at my head, by by and, and I was carrying an M sixteen, and I and I looked at these kids. And I said they are ready to do what I was ready to do uh, as a as a teenage uh, Jewish militant, defender of the Jews. Def they were the defenders of the Palestinians, absolutely, and and, and they are putting their blood. Thousands or tens of thousands of young Palestinians saw the inside of an Israeli prison, uh, as you and I both know, because we were both uh, soldiers guarding prisons right. at different points. And so 
that was a really powerful experience for me, seeing these kids coming in and out of prison. And I was in and out of, of American jails. I remember what they called it, Jamathoria. Uh, Liberation University. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, when you know, when I was a, a teenager, it seemed like a particularly stupid thing to do for for on the part of Israel to sort of um, build these build these finishing schools for Palestinian, maybe not yet radicals yes, who we, became more radical. But we, but we did, and so the right has not yet come to terms with the fact that Palestinian national identity and the willingness to sacrifice is a reflection of their own sensibility. But you have a line in the book that's interesting. You say, are the Palestinians a contrived people? Yes. Are Israelis a contrived people? Yeah. All peoples are contrived. That's it's the, all a that's decision. That's the definition of peoplehood right, right. is that you're contrived. Right, right. You've decided yes. collectively with a bunch of other people that you're the same people. Exactly. And so, then you move through history together. So that's, that's what the Israeli and Jewish right uh, haven't internalized. Well, what, have they internalized lessons about uh, – Jewish moral law and what Jews, because of Judaism, owe the stranger or owe the weaker party? Or is that a more difficult one for you? Look, I think that uh, that Jewish history speaks to our generation of Jews uh, with two commanding voices. Uh, and these voices have, have uh, analogs in, in biblical verses. The first is, remember, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And the lesson there is, don't be brutal. Don't do to others what was done to you. The second voice is remember what the tribe of Amalek did to you when you were leaving Egypt and you were attacked without provocation. And the message there is uh, don't be naive. Remember that you live in a world where genocide against the Jewish people is possible. Part of the tragedy of the left-right Jewish discourse today is that each of these camps has appropriated another one of these commanding <laughs> lessons. Right. You know, so it's, yeah, okay, so the left has done a really great job in remembering uh, that we, we shouldn't be brutal. Uh, the left has done, the Jewish left has done a far less good job in uh, not being naive. Well, let me, let's, let's expand on this because my next question was obviously, what doesn't the Jewish left in America understand about the conflict? I think that uh, – And that could be – that you can answer that historically, morally, however. I, I think that there's a certain um, – let me be really offensive here. Uh, there's <laughs> There's a certain kind of, I would say, almost emotional Holocaust denial on uh, parts of the Jewish left. Meaning? Meaning that if, you, if you're a post-Holocaust Jew – and the only takeaway you have from the Holocaust is that we have to be we have to be nice to other people. There's there's something missing. It's not the in main your, lesson it, for you. I, I won't. No, it's it's one of the two main lessons. It absolutely is one of the main lessons, but it's certainly not the only. Right. Main. The other main essential lesson is you better take care of yourselves. You better value your sovereignty. You better value the fact that you now have a Jewish army that can protect the Jewish people. So the right has convinced themselves that the Palestinians don't actually exist, and the left has convinced themselves that the Palestinians are entirely benign as a political movement. Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I I, I wouldn't go so far as to say entirely benign, but well, I it depends think depends on where yes, you are in the depends left. on where you are. Right, I'd say that that the fatal mistake uh, on the Jewish left is not to take Israel's vulnerability seriously enough, and right. not to take 
Palestinian rejectionism of Israel's legitimacy and indigenousness seriously. This goes to a fight that we've had in the past about the Iran deal. Um, I think, you know, I was not enthusiastic, but I was a 55-45-60-40 sort of – you know what? This might actually keep Iran from developing a nuclear weapon for 10 years. Um, you are in the position that Iran wants to kill you. Um, any money, any recognition, any kind of uh, recognition of of their inherent right or latent right to def- quote unquote defend themselves, that was actually going to redound to Israel's disfavor. I mean, where, where are you on this question uh, now? And I ask it against the backdrop of something that's fairly obviously happening, which is an Iranian push, aggressive push right up against the borders of Israel, which could lead to a war sooner or later, God forbid. Yeah, I think that that just about everything that the opponents of the Iran deal warned against uh, is coming to pass. Uh, Iran today effectively controls uh, four Arab countries. And the the impingement on Israel's border, which is really, uh, um, I'd say, uh, unprecedented. We, we, we haven't experienced anything quite like this since 1973, the, since the Yom Kippur War, or maybe since 1967. Uh, this sense of, of the walls coming in, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why Israel is so adamant about not allowing Hamas demonstrators to get close to the fence. We're looking at, at the implications of that on all of our borders. Right. Uh, and, um, and so what the Iran deal did was leave Iran on the nuclear threshold with a sunset clause down the line, meaning that Iran at some point uh, uh, would be able to, to cross the nuclear threshold. And, uh, and, the, and the concession uh, of uh, uh, the trade-off uh, for for Iran postponing its nuclear ambitions uh, was the empowerment of Iran as the regional uh, Muslim conventional power. And, uh, and we're seeing that playing out now. And, and it's the reason why the Sunni world is seeking out a, a strategic alliance with Israel. Right. Now, what I will give you, Jeff, is um, – and only grudgingly – because this was I was going to take it anyway, <laughs> but go on. The the unintended consequence of uh, of this deal uh, of the of the nuclear deal is that it has created a Sunni Israeli alliance against the deal. But let me just push on you a little bit here. There is an intended consequence, which is let's say, God forbid, that there is an Iranian aggressive uh, attack on. Uh, on Israel from Syria and Lebanon at some point in the near term. Uh, Iran will be doing this entirely conventionally because it does not have a nuclear capability because they have actually frozen their nuclear program in place. Now, that doesn't – if you're Israeli thinking about five or ten years ahead, it doesn't give you that much uh, comfort. But right now, it should give you some comfort, no? Well. Right now, yes. Right now is when there might be a war. Yeah. And it's going to be an entirely conventional war because of that. True. But five or ten years from now is really not a very long time. And given that uh, this deal left the door open, left the door, I would say, fairly wide open for for a nuclear Iran, uh, the the question that we're facing now and that we're going to face imminently is um, – 
is is to what extent is this war going to be fought? Right. In other words, uh, should should the Israeli Air Force uh, bomb Iranian nuclear facilities if we if we find ourselves in a war with Iran? You mean now? Now, huh? And uh, I what think do that, you say? I think that that's a real option. I'm I'm terrified of it because. Uh, but those facilities are frozen. You have to acknowledge that. Those facilities are frozen, but they're frozen on the nuclear threshold. So the fact that they're frozen is, is from, a, from a strategic point of view, uh, is, is irrelevant. Do you think Israel would be in a better position to argue for its existence <clears throat> in a conflict with Iran if it had done more to ameliorate the political situation of the Palestinians, look, I, I, felt, this is, it's a very American political. Question, no, but I, 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 it's a fair question, and I, and I, that's, I, I wrote at the time urging uh, the Israeli government to do exactly that. That we needed, we needed to have credibility on one front, uh, on on the reconciliation front, to at least try to uh, to reach some kind of agreement with the Palestinians. Uh, in order to have credibility on a potential military confrontation with Iran, and I, I fault I fault my government uh, for um, not for for its its tough stand on uh, uh, on on our neighbors uh, on 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 our I I don't fault the Israeli government for taking a uh, a hard line. On, uh, on Iran, on Hezbollah, Hamas. Uh, this is really a, a, an alliance that is passionately committed to Israel's destruction. Where I do fault uh, my government is in not showing flexibility and goodwill uh, where the issues are not existential. For example, uh, on the African asylum issue, uh, yeah. on... Um, uh, on uh, that's the issue of um, uh, African refugees crossing the Egyptian-Israeli border, settling yeah. in Israel, and a lot of people in Israel want Israel to be kinder to those refugees. It's yes. not a unique situation, so, obviously, in no, the developed but, uh, world. No, but you know what? To, to, to take this back to the metaphor we were using earlier, uh, in dealing with Iran, I want our primary sensibility to be the commanding voice of remember that you live in a world where genocide is possible. In dealing with the African asylum seekers, I want our policy to be shaped by the commanding voice of remember that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And if you don't have both of those sensibilities, then you are a one-dimensional Jew. And, and the right and the left, to my mind, really belong to the same camp. And that's the camp of the one-dimensional Jews. The simple Jews. The simplistic Jews. The simplistic Jews. It's an interesting argument. Go, go, do do one more turn on this before we finish up. The, the, the. I said at the beginning that the purpose of the book is also to convince liberal American Jews, or suggested that one of the purposes is to remind people of the righteousness of the cause of Israel. Do you think that should you find Palestinian readers that they will say, "Oh, you know what, Yossi, you're right. You are from here too." That the the Temple Mount is real, the Western Wall is real. There, Israel is real. Israel is is real. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it seems pretty late in the game to to believe that a hardened narrative can be shifted. That hardened narrative being obviously that the Jews represent um, not a people but a faith, 
a people that is an inter and then a, a group of people who are interlopers in native Arab land. I, I mean, it's it's a it's a good book, but really, how much how much lift, <laughs> how much lifting can you do? I, I've already begun showing the book to some Palestinians I know, and I've and I've actually begun getting some letters in response. Some of the letters are are conciliatory, some are hard. Uh, but I'm I'm really grateful for all the letters that I'm getting. The book is going to be translated into Arabic. It basically has already been translated into Arabic, and it will be offered for uh, free downloading mm-hmm. uh, only in Arabic. The English readers are going to have to pay for the book. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. Well, they're less important than the mission. Yeah, uh, but I but I I I I wanted really to 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 address your question, which is. That uh, or two questions really. So, in terms of of uh, trying to to redress the the deep narrative, which is widespread throughout the Muslim world, by the way, it's not only in Palestinian society by any means uh, that the Jews are not indigenous to this land, that we don't have uh, a history in the land. We've lied about our identity. We're just a uh, a faith. Uh, we're not a people. Uh, I'm a writer. That's all. I'm not a a politician. All I can do is write. And so I'm writing. I'm writing to my Palestinian neighbor, and I'm trying to explain who I am. Uh, and this uh, this is really a um, a sequel, in a way, to an earlier book that I that I wrote uh, called "At the Entrance to the Garden of Eden," uh, which was the story of a journey that I took into Palestinian society in the late 1990s going as a religious Jew into mosques and uh, and praying in some in some cases being invited into the Muslim prayer line and and writing about my experiences in Palestinian society and that journey really was a journey of learning and listening uh, I call this a sequel because this is now my attempt to explain to my Palestinian neighbors, who I am, what my story is as a Jew, what my people's story is, why we came home. Uh, if American Jews will find this interesting and eavesdropping uh, onto this conversation with my neighbors, uh, that is a is is clearly another hope of mine. Uh, not just American Jews. I mean, this book is coming out uh, in Arabic. It's coming out in English. It's coming out in Hebrew. I also have a conversation with my fellow Israelis. Uh, right. About the Palestinians and 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 the future of a two state solution. And my question to my fellow Israelis is: is Look, I get it. I understand why we have uh, dug in, why we have frozen, why we're terrified of uh, of a Palestinian state on our borders. I get it. But let's not forget the other great fear, which is uh, the fear that we're going to become permanent rulers over another people. Is there um, any solution other than the two-state solution? You know, I ask myself that a lot, and obviously, I, I, the two-state solution isn't isn't sacred. Uh, it's not sacred for for either side. Uh, there is some whisperings, or there's there's a movement, uh, a new movement in Israel, uh, to uh, to envision a kind of confederation. Uh, two states, one homeland is the slogan, and uh, and and this is it's an interesting movement because it was founded uh, by an alliance of left wingers and settlers, right? 
And the idea of this movement is that nobody will be moved from their homes. Settlers stay where they are, uh, just as Israel has uh, one and a half million Palestinian citizens. There will be there will yeah. be settlers on the other side. Uh, I think it's a charming idea in principle. I don't see how this is workable in practice. You can come back at me and say, "Well, is a two-state solution uh, still workable?" Uh, my answer is, I don't know. But we've never tried it, and this is this is the solution that's been on the table almost since the beginning of the conflict, going back to the 1930s. Partition, which is the the unloved solution, uh, to my mind, still has no alternative. Yossi, thanks very much for talking to me. Pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. That's our show for this week. My thanks again to Yossi Klein-Halevi. His book is called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend. The executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Catherine Wells. If you like the show, please rate it and share it with friends. Again, we'll be going on a short break, but just stay subscribed and that way you'll find out when we're back. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.